The blog post version of this episode is brought to you by the Christian Indie Publishing Association. Find out more about them at the end of the episode. Creating an online course to go along with your book content can be a great way to bring both better transformation for your students and additional income for you. But how do you do it? How do you build an online course? And when do you know when your idea or your book is a good fit for being made into a course? How do you get started? Well, we have a guest on the show today who's going to help us answer those questions. This is the Christian Publishing Show, the podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. And today we're talking with someone who's traditionally published several books, is a speaker, a writing coach, and co-founder of The Inspired Business, where she helps authors generate recurring income from digital products. Becky Kopinski, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thanks, Thomas. It's fun to be here. So how do I know if my book can be turned into an online course? How do I know if it's a good fit? Well, consider first your audience and determine, is does your book lend itself to further engagement, further exploration of the topic? I would argue that almost any book could be turned into an online course, depending on how you want to utilize it to expand the reader's experience. That's how I like to look at it. So, for example, if your topic is interactive, we can only interact so much on the page, but through a video, through an online course that maybe has a live coaching component, there's so much more that you can do to engage with the reader and to expand their experience with your book's content. It's exciting, I think. Part of the reason why I do courses instead of books is that in my experience, many people buy books and then don't read them. Yes. Right? Our books are <laughs> bookshelves are filled with our good intentions. And even when people do read a book, very rarely do they put it into practice. Right. I learned how to do this. I was homeschooled and my mom was sick for a good portion of my homeschooling, which meant that homeschooling for me was my mom handing me a book and telling me to learn the material on my own. <laughs> so it can be done. People can teach themselves topics and that can be really transformational, right? You get a library card and suddenly you can become an expert. But most people, the way they have learned their whole lives is they have a teacher who breaks it down and a teacher who holds them accountable. And that accountability piece is the real key piece, right? It's like a, a, a gym membership without going to the gym offers no transformation, no matter how fancy the gym right, is. Right, absolutely. And then when you go to that gym and you have somebody holding your hand and telling you how many push-ups to do and standing over you, counting, that's when the transformation really happens. So like you said, it, it's two-pronged. One is you get the information in a visual sort of format, but you also, in many cases with an online course, because you do have the ability to coach people through it, the teacher actually comes into your living room and is walking you through, answering your questions, giving you all sorts of opportunities to have a guided experience with the content versus just consuming it on your own. And that, I think, that builds a relationship with your reader that you can't do only on paper. That's right. It's much more in depth. I mean, the question some people are asking is, my content's already a free blog post, and then I made it a $20 book. Why would somebody spend hundreds of dollars to get that same content 
as a course? <laughs> I love that question <laughs> because it's crazy, but there's sort of this trajectory, right? It's print book or it's blog post, right? Free, the free content. And then it's the print book or the ebook. And then it is the online course experience. And what you are able to, to charge and what people will pay increases with each of those components. And it's because I believe how you are packaging the content, how people are able to experience it. It's the convenience of it. It's the outcome of it. It increases as you go from blog post to full book where you've perhaps repackaged a whole set of blog posts in a way that's more convenient, in a way that draws a cohesive conclusion, in a way that serves your reader. They don't have to search for it somewhere online. It's right there in their hands. And from that point, if you give them the, an experience, an interactive experience, what they take out of it, the value is so much greater. And that's why it's worth more money to them ultimately. And that to me is makes the most sense. I mean, let's talk about repurposing, right? That's one of the smartest ways to write a book, to develop a course, repurpose content you've already created and do it in a way that enhances the experience and the convenience factor for your participant. And it, it absolutely is worth what you're charging. That's right. Why do people pay to go to seminary? You can get the Bible for free on your iPhone. <laughs> yes. It's like, well, there's something about going to discipleship school that's different from reading the Bible for free. And there's an interesting paradox in information science on the web. There's a famous quote, and I forget who said this quote, but we'll, we'll try to credit him in the show notes. He said that information wants to be free. But if you keep reading his quote, he says in like the very next paragraph, information also wants to be expensive. There's kind of two ways to present information. There's the free study that they release, the executive summary for free online, because the more people who hear about it, the more buzz there is about the study. But then to actually read the details of the study, you have to spend a lot of money or some big research report, right? Gallup will release free numbers, but if you want their private exclusive numbers, you have to pay millions of dollars. That's how Gallup stays in business. And so information either wants to be very free or very expensive. It doesn't work as well cheap. This is where newspapers are struggling. People don't want to spend a little. They either want to spend a lot or they want to spend nothing. But on the other hand, education always wants to be expensive. <laughs> There's never a time when education wants to be free. In fact, devaluing education, making it too free actually makes it less effective. I've seen this in my courses. I'll have a, a high price course and I'll give somebody a free copy of that course. And in almost every instance, the people who don't pay for the course don't value and participate in the course, right? It's your family that you bring to the conference that don't, they're not invested. Their treasure's not there. So their heart's not there. If their heart's not there, then the transformation's not there. Yeah, absolutely. I've made that same mistake thinking I just need to make this really accessible to everyone. Therefore, everyone only has to pay this very small price. Therefore, I get an influx of people who aren't actually valuing what I've offered and probably don't even crack open the first lesson because it's not a big deal, right? I only spent $19 on it or whatever, only spent $30 on it. So it's a feasible loss for people. Whereas if you've charged 300 or 3000 well, it's more likely that you're going to want to get a return on that investment and not look at it as just a, an easy loss to cut. So I've learned that over the years too, doing some testing and figuring out where pricing ought to be. And it's interesting how we, as believers, especially, we have a heart to serve. And a heart to serve means 
I want to give people things for free. But I have discovered that when you do, when you give it away for free, when you give it away for a low price point that's actually devaluing the content, then people are less likely to consume it, which means the transformation that that course or that content was supposed to provide is never brought to fruition. That's why we create courses, right? It's because you want to take a person from point A, their problem state, to point B, which is their dream state or their resolution state. And that is our goal. That's our hope for courses. And if you price it at a point where someone's not even going to bother to open up the first lesson, then they will never experience the transformation, which means the whole purpose of your course is lost. So it's tricky. You got to price it at a point where people value it enough to actually engage with the content. Yeah, you don't want to throw your pearls before swine. But I think there's an even deeper principle here because a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's a sin if I charge for this, <laughs> right? And that, you know, not charging doesn't make you holy. It makes you broke. I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it again. The Bible is very clear that you can get paid for your work, that you should be paid for your work. Even oxen are paid for their work. Even church workers are paid for their work. Don't set yourself up as more holy than your pastor who gets paid for his work. Yes. Right? And if you don't value what you're offering, why should anybody else value what you're offering? This is a topic I'm very passionate about, actually. It's fair pricing for God-honoring income. We're not talking about gouging people. We're talking about getting a fair return for the work and the knowledge that you have invested in sharing with other people. There's always a place for free. There's always a place for volunteer work. I will always go and speak to my church groups. At my own home church, I will always volunteer for free in the same way that everyone else does. There's a place for that. But if writing, course building, if it is your vocation, then you ought to receive compensation for it as a vocation. It's not a hobby. It's a vocation. And when people recognize what you have to offer can provide that transformation for them, they aren't turned off by your offer, turned off by the fact that you're selling something. They actually come back around and are grateful for it. They're grateful to you for selling something because you provided something for them that made a difference in their lives. So there's this way of thinking about selling, especially for faith-based content creators, that the switch needs to be flipped because it's not that people are going to be turned off by your offer. Consider how many people will be grateful for your offer. And if you never reach those people because you are afraid of the ask, you're afraid of selling something, then you've actually lost out on the opportunity to serve your audience in richer ways. There is a paradox I have been pondering for the last couple of years, and it is the bank robber paradox. Why does somebody rob a bank to get money to then pay for something legally. Right? If they're a thief, why don't they just steal the food from the store and not rob the bank? And yet people steal money so that they can then legally spend that money. There's something about spending the money that even a robber wants to do. Because <laughs> in, in like video games, there's video games that allow you to steal. And it's like, why would you ever buy anything once you've gone that path, right? Once you've gone to the dark side, why buy anything? <laughs> And yet in the world that we live in, in the real world, bank robbers spend their money places. And it's a, it's a fascinating paradox. And it, I've just been kind of puzzling over it. But there's something powerful about spending money, especially when you want to become different, when you want 
to be transformed. And there's really no amount of money that you can charge that's not still massively cheaper compared to getting a university education. (laughs) College is so overpriced right now. I went to school a long time ago and it's gotten way more expensive since when I went. But even when I went, it was $350 for a textbook, (laughs) not for the course, just for the book. (laughs) The course was Three thousand, four thousand dollars for one college course. So a semester is ten, fifteen thousand dollars, and then there's all these additional fees on top of that. A lot of people went to my school and just left with debt and didn't really learn anything, um, right? Because they picked a bad major. <laughs> so they picked a major that they were they they were a, a dog chasing the wrong car. Um, which that's a whole other topic about university, but I try to grab every high school student I can and be like, your major matters. Don't go into the liberal arts and it's study something from someone who believes that truth exists, either financial truth or scientific truth or religious truth, not something where it's all about power. And anyway, I'm, I'm going down that rabbit hole. I've got a music degree and I got to tell you, if I could do it again, I would have gotten a different degree, but it did open doors for me in publishing because I was able to work in music publishing. But I think the same thing when I look, so I have, I have two daughters. My oldest is almost 15 and she is, she's in high school now and we're looking at colleges already because they start pushing it already and the cost of that education. And so I'm just going to go down your rabbit hole with you and tell you that she wants to be a teacher. And part of me is thinking that is a very admirable job. You better find a husband who makes more money. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean that because we value money above all else. We do not. And I love that she has a, a passion for that field. But this is my rabbit trail is I don't think that our teachers get paid nearly enough. Nearly enough. When people like you and me can charge money for a course, I've never been educated in how to be a teacher. I just know my content and I know how to convey that information. But people who sit in a classroom all day long and are investing in the next generation, they deserve a whole lot more than what they get. So here's an example of all of this kind of brought together. One of my brothers has some health challenges and he wasn't healthy enough to go to university. And yet he still wanted to get a good high paying job, something he could do from home that wasn't very difficult and where if he has a bad health day, he can just take the day off. So he spent 2000 or $2,500 on a course on how to become a podcast editor. It was a podcast editing university. It wasn't a real university, but it didn't matter because for less than one university class, he got trained to become a podcast editor and is now making more per hour it. than most college graduates. And it took him four months to go through the training program. And now because of this course, if he wanted to change and do a different career, he could take a different course and do that different career. And he's got all of this money saved and he's not in debt like his peers are. And he's in such a stronger financial position because he took an online course rather than going to a university. So I'm not saying universities for nobody, right? I'm not saying don't go to university, but I do say count the cost before you do something and, and really run the numbers. I am thinking that there are many people that I come across who say I wasn't trained in this. I didn't go to seminary. I'm not a trained writer. But online courses and online education allows us to reinvent ourselves because it's so accessible now. It didn't, that once upon a time, there was no such thing as opening up Google and finding every possible topic to be trained on right inside your computer. That just wasn't an option. And now you can reinvent yourself. You can gain new skills. And 
For those of us who are course creators, we're blessed to be able to share our information with other people so that they are able to reinvent themselves. I've taken a ton of courses. I continue to take courses. I really believe that a good coach needs to continue to be coached. And I'm so grateful for that because I do it all from my desk. I don't have to go back to college. I don't have to go to a building somewhere and sit and spend three hours of my day in a class. I can work this with my family life, with my home business rhythm. And that's another advantage, I think, to online courses in taking them and creating and selling them. So let's talk about that process of making a course. Somebody's like, I'm all in. You've convinced me. I want to turn my material into a course. They either have a book already or they've been working on a book and they've got a lot of stuff they have to say. So walk us through your process. I'm, I'm curious how it compares to my process. Maybe we'll share both if they're if they're overly different. Okay, so we might have to put the boxing gloves on because I know you are a former WordPress guy. And I switched over from WordPress to Kajabi and I will never look back. So my tool, my tech stack is Kajabi and ConvertKit. Your tech stack can be different. Tech stack meaning what is the technology? What are the platforms that you use to build your course? And that is what trips people up. And I don't want them to think that they need to have that answer all figured out before they start with a course. So my starting point is always figuring out what content can I provide, especially if we're talking about a digital product or digital course that's related to a book, then what is it of that book that lends itself to an interactive type of relationship with the reader, who is then not no longer your reader, but your student or your participant. And so I think of what topic is going to be of interest to them, but then I ask them first. And this is something that I have learned the hard way. And it's it makes so much sense. Don't just pick a topic and hope somebody likes it. I go first to my audience and I do what it, I call it message mining. It's something that I learned from another coach. Her name is Haley Burkhead. I love the principles that she teaches. Message mining, same another term, market research. I go to my audience and I ask probing questions to get to the bottom of what are their needs? What are they struggling with? What keeps them up at night? What is their point A and what do they want to be their point B? And then I use all of that information to identify how I can solve that problem with my course topic. And then I start building it out. And then just as I would write a book, I just start creating my, my content outline. I organize things into what would be chapters is now lessons. And first I flesh everything out as a, I'm a writer. So I, I love to type it up. Not everybody does that, but I type up my scripts and, and figure out what's going to be video content, what's going to be supplemental content, what, meaning handouts or worksheets, or, or I call in one of my courses, I call it an action plan. It's basically the homework that helps you apply what you've just learned. And I get all of that figured out, and then I start building it out in the technology. But before we worry about the technology, you've got to know what's the right product for the right reason. And for that, I go straight to my audience and I ask them, how about you, Thomas? What do you do? So I 100% agree on that first step, identifying the pain that is so powerful. And it's what most authors don't do. They start with their book and they're like, I'm going to adapt my book into a course rather than starting with the audience and starting with the audience really changes everything. So I do the same thing. In fact, sometimes I'll give out free consultations on a topic to my audience and I do it limited. Now, if I were to throw out that link, I'd 
do nothing but free consultations, <laughs> but occasionally I'll give them away as prizes, right? At a, a webinar, like, hey, five people will win a free consultation, or whatever. And so I'll talk to them for 15 minutes and they're asking me questions, but I'm also listening for what those questions are. And I often will find the same question coming up over and over again. And being a podcaster also helps because I get questions coming in all the time. <laughs> so I have a steady stream of questions coming in through various channels. And then the next step I do actually is build the sales page before I build the content. Because I find that the act of building the sales page really crystallizes my promise and getting the promise of the course to line up with the pain that the students are experiencing. And it also helps me realize what really needs to be in the course or not. And then eventually I'll line up the modules of the course to the promises in the sales page. And so the sales page comes first or second. That's fascinating. To me, that's the backwards process, but it, I can't understand why you would do that. In my case, I find so many more little details to create in the course as I'm working on it. I, if I were to create the sales page first, I would, I'd be, I think I would be missing out on a lot of the components and the pain points that I end up discovering as I'm creating the content. So for me, sales page comes second, but I can understand why you would do that. It would give you the, a really tight snapshot of, like you said, what needs to be in the course and maybe what doesn't. Because there's often the things I want to talk about, right? My little pet yeah. topics <laughs> that I'm really passionate about, but the students aren't passionate about. And maybe it'll be in the course. I put a lot of bonus content in mm -hmm. my courses that aren't in the sales page and aren't in the promise and aren't you know required reading, so to speak. And it's not like the sales page is written in stone. So it keeps getting revised. And I do the sales page. And then what I do is a beta launch of the course. Me too. So I'm making the course in real time with students so that then when the real sales page comes, I have some real testimonials from those beta students. Yeah. In fact, there's a term for this that, again, I learned from the course I took with Haley Burkhead. It's the beta cash flow formula. Because what you're essentially doing is funding creation of the course. So many authors think there's no way that I could afford whatever it is, the technology or the time that it takes to create this course before I can sell it, then do a beta run. And exactly what you said, you've got all you need to have is the first lesson ready. Not even you can just have a promise of what you're going to offer, get people in the door to a checkout and then get feedback. I've had such great experiences getting feedback on the course as I'm developing it. In one case, one of my courses became something almost completely different from what I was intending. When people got in there and determined what was helpful to them and what wasn't and were able to give me that feedback and the course became something so much better than what I had envisioned originally. So a beta start can not only fund the development of the course, but it can help shape it so that you know you can help people and get higher conversion on the back end. And it tests to see if people actually want the course. It's really tragic when somebody spends 100 hours or 200 hours building a course only to then find out that there isn't good product market fit. The promise wasn't good or the material's not good or you know somehow it didn't fit and all of that is wasted and they can't sell it. If you can't get beta students to pay the beta discount for your course, then don't make the course. Right. <laughs> right. Keep working on your craft. Keep working on your ideas. Keep working on listening to understand what the pain is with your target audience. And it can save you from a lot of wrong turns. And I really wish that I had known this because this is a, a principle from business. It's a new principle. So when I went to business school, we didn't have it yet. Uh, which is unfortunate because it would have saved me from my first failed business. <laughs> the, the business term is MVP or minimum viable product. 
where you're testing the market and you're testing the idea and the beta version of the course where perhaps you're presenting the material live, right? So eventually you're going to have these tightly edited videos, but for your beta students, they listen to it live on a Zoom call. And then you take their questions and you're listening to their questions and then you're adapting the material so that when you do that tightly recorded scripted version of the video, you're doing it with knowledge of what the common questions are, what the objections <laughs> that people are like, no, I disagree because of such and such. If you know that ahead of time, you can work it into the material and address it right away and ends up being a much stronger course. Yeah, for sure. Talk to me about your beta pricing. I do a half price. How about you when you're inviting people in for the yeah, a discount in order to go through it as it's being built? So I only have one course in beta right now. It's my obscure no more course. And the it's my, like my biggest super signature course. It's got almost everything that I do in it. And it's going to be in beta for a long time. It's already been in beta okay, for a year. Gotcha. <laughs> so for that one, the beta discount's bigger because the, there's so much material there and it's coming out so slow because life events like babies and other courses that I'm doing interrupt. So that's a two thirds off. It's priced at $1,500, but the beta price is 500. So it's a little more than half off, but I don't feel bad giving that big discount just because people really are being patient, right? It's not like, oh, we'll have it done in three months kind of deal or six months. Like we're slowly adding more and more content to that on a continual basis. So I want to talk tech stack real quick and then go back into content because our tech stacks actually aren't as different as you might think. Although I'm thinking, partly I wish I was back at WordPress, but I use Teachable instead of Kajabi. Oh, okay. So Teachable and Kajabi are real similar for those who don't know. I would look at both of them. They're both well-loved. Kajabi does a little bit more. It's a little bit more of an all-in-one solution, but it's affiliate program's not quite as strong from what I've heard of people using Kajabi. The what's not quite as strong? The affiliate program. So if you want to do affiliates, Kajabi people have a little bit of trouble with that. It, it can be done. It does have built-in affiliates, but I've noticed Kajabi folks tend to not be as affiliate-centric in their course promotion. Although that may have changed. They may have fixed it in the... <laughs> yeah, no, it's... it. Yeah, it actually works pretty well, the affiliate program, but I use a, a third-party checkout as well uh, in order to overcome a, just a couple of obstacles that I had inside uh, Kajabi. In, be- in the beginning, you had to create an account in order to purchase a product. And if it wasn't a course product or something that if it didn't require you to log in, if it was maybe just a PDF download or something, I didn't want someone to have to create an account. They've since changed that, but I use a different checkout tool now anyway, which also manages my affiliates. But I was using its affiliate program, but a year ago for a different product and it was fine. It doesn't have any bells and whistles, but it was okay. Did the trick. Yeah. Yeah. With Teachable, you can create an affiliate link to a webinar using their affiliate link builder so that everyone who comes to the webinar, whether they register for the webinar or not, is cookied. And you can embed coupon codes and affiliate links. And it's got a really robust affiliate tool if you're using it. If you don't know what an affiliate link is, don't worry. Don't worry about (laughs) it. This is kind of advanced marketing, but affiliates are a real common way to help get students for a course. But ConvertKit, I feel, is really the best email tool it's arguably it's the best it's a little more expensive than mailer light which is what a lot of authors use and which is also good mailchimp is the worst it used to be good and it just yeah. got awful it used to be good i started on mailchimp and converted over to convert kit probably seven years ago maybe and i'm so entwined so kajabi also offers 
an email tool, which has been improved. It's better than it used to be, really. It could probably do the trick. But I'm so ingrained in ConvertKit, it will be like a surgical procedure in order to get myself untagged and unautomated out of ConvertKit. And I do really like it. It's a great program for managing your emails. You can do lead magnets through it, although I, I use Kajabi for all my sales pages, all of my lead magnets. And I am a huge Kajabi fan because I started building my first course in WordPress and I had probably half a dozen plugins and I finally wanted to jump out a window and I spent about two weeks trying to build something that still wasn't talking to each other. And I'm not an expert coder. I wasn't a site builder. I had only enough knowledge to be kind of dangerous, which is the spot that a lot of authors are in. And so I switched to Kajabi and I was able to build in two days what I had, it had taken me two weeks to build in WordPress. And that's why I love Kajabi. But the other reason I switched off of Teachable is because I needed to own the site in order to install some pixel code for ads. So that's why for, for me, it worked for, if you're running ads, it, it makes a whole lot more sense to not incorporate a third party tool. Although you can't add a pixel in teachable but i'll say the third piece of my tech stack that's new and i really like it is circle.so which is a community site oh you're using circle so i moved away from facebook groups okay. about a year ago for all of my courses and it was the best thing i ever did facebook is just the worst for the community component and that the high cost of free is so high anytime you hear an ad for authormedia.social the technology that's powering authormedia.social is circle.so and it integrates with Teachable. You can just click a link from any of the courses and it will take you right there and you're already logged in. And Circle has just been great for authors connecting with each other and getting questions answered. And man, getting off of Facebook is so nice. You know why I still <laughs> use a Facebook group is because that's where my people are and, and they're more likely to check. I, and I battle with the same thing. I don't love being on Facebook, but that's where I have my group because that's where people are living. My audience is still there and it's so much easier for them just to see a notification when they go in to post their kids' pictures and to remember to get into the group and ask and answer questions. Whereas I find if they have a third-party tool that they have to log into separately, they're less likely to go there. They're just less likely to even think of it. And so then I have to find other opportunities. I'm emailing my participants all the time. It's not like we don't have other channels of communication, but because they're already living on Facebook, it just makes sense to be there. So I thought about switching to something like Circle. I've heard Mighty Networks is good, but I've never looked into it. Do you know much about Mighty Networks? Yeah, Mighty Networks is a bit older. The technology's got a higher tech debt. So one of the nice things about Circle is that it's a relatively new platform, which means it doesn't have a large technology debt. It's built in all the latest HTML5 and JavaScript frameworks, and it just runs really smoothly without a lot of issues. Their one issue is that they've been growing so fast that they have some performance issues. Do they? So <laughs> sometimes it will run slow because so many people are moving over to them. It's the same challenge of any uh, social network. And one challenge I've been seeing, I'm curious if you've seen this, is while Facebook can give a notification that there's new activity in the group, it doesn't always give the notification. So sometimes it's hard to actually get those red numbers, especially as people join more and more groups. So somebody's a yep. part of 200 groups and they're all active. Yep. It's really easy to get lost in the noise. I think there's no perfect solution to com an online community. There just isn't right now because you can meet people where they are, but then you have the, you're limited to what that platform offers, or you can go to a third party platform. 
in like circle and probably have a lot better experience once they're in there. But for me, the challenge then is getting them in there. So I just don't think right now there is a really ideal solution. I think people are trying to figure it out. But in the end, I just like to go where my people live and that I'm more yeah. likely to find them. Because the shame of it is if you have a, someone enrolled in your course who doesn't actually participate, it's discouraging for me as a course creator because I know what the content can do for them. Right. And if they're not taking advantage of it, it's unfortunate. A technique that I've used in our book launch blueprint, which is our most popular course that worked both when we had a Facebook group and when we have a circle group is that each day of the course, there's homework. And part of the homework is posting something to the community where they're getting feedback from the community on their homework. So it's kind of open book. Mm -hmm. So people are putting their book launches together and they're, let's say they're doing a media plan. Like, so here are the podcasts I'm going to go on. Here's the radio shows I'm going to pitch and they'll share their media plan for all of the other students. Mm -hmm. And the other students will get ideas from that media plan. They're sharing theirs as well. And the fact that it's homework and I use that language homework causes people every day to go back to the community and recheck in. So our engagement is off the chain, both when we were using Facebook and when we were using Circle. So at, at no point were we relying on the platform to bring people through the course. Do you allow them to continue on to the next unit before they posted their homework? Or do you actually have it the content drip so that they have to submit homework before they go on to the next lesson? We're very libertarian. There's no tests. The test is the real world. (laughs) You're an adult. You can do the homework if you want to do the homework. The content does drip each day during the book launch blueprint because it is cohort model. So there is a punishment for being late. And the punishment is you're not doing the homework the same day everyone else is doing the homework. So there's this real sense of fun. And students are really good about doing the homework the day it's due for the most part. Because it is really nice to look at, see whatever you're working on your brand, right? It's the branding module. You're doing all your answers of who your brand is and you're looking at other people's brands and they're like, oh, you're reaching a similar audience and it's encouraging, but also you might get some ideas from them. And that encouragement and that brainstorming is really valuable. And if you don't do the homework the day it happens, you don't get as much of that. You run a live launch each time and it's a a live, whatever, six, 12 week period where people are engaging together. So I do it both ways with different courses. So what we're talking about is what's called the cohort model in the course world. So there's two ways to do a course. There's self-paced where you go in and you go at your own pace and then cohort where you are marching with the troops. And in my experience, self-paced means doing it tomorrow for most people. The procrastination is this real enemy of a self-paced course. However, for a small percentage of really motivated people, self-paced allows them to race through the material really quickly. In my case, it allows them to participate at all because I do a lower price point for the self-paced. So I do a self-paced version and then I do a walking through with coaching version. And obviously the walking through with live coaching is far more expensive. And so it's in that case on the sales page, it's not a Am I, the question is not, will I buy or will I not buy? It's, will I buy this one or will I buy that one? Interesting. <laughs> and so it's psychologically, they'll look at that and say, it's not a yes or a no, it's this or that. And so it's almost as though they have, it's not an out to say, no, I can't afford it. It's, I could still do it. I could do the self-paced and it's going to cost less. So that has been actually very successful for me. Interesting. And that's it. So another question as you're creating courses is, is this all prepackaged? which is the easiest to sell, but it's the least valuable 
for the student because it's more like selling information and less like selling education? Or does this involve uh, live training with me? And you, and I feel like you can go too far on the live training where if it's 100% live training, the replays of that two-hour Zoom call aren't very valuable. <laughs> it was really valuable for the people who are there, but the information density is is really too low for folks watching the replay unless they're really desperate to get an answer to a specific question. And I found that the best mix in terms of student outcome is presenting the material initially in a really succinct, well-edited, pre-recorded presentation, and then combining that with a live element where people can ask questions and kind of fill in the gaps. Is that what you've seen? Yep, that's exactly what I do. But then if people don't want to take the full coaching option, then they will just get the pre-recorded videos, which walks them step by step. And some people do prefer that. They really do. They just want to take it at their own pace. But then I do a live Q&A at least weekly. We'll do a Zoom call. There's community. It builds community. It builds enthusiasm. People can learn from each other. So in addition to the community group where we're posting questions and comments and sharing all day long, at least once a week, there's also that opportunity to step into a live video-based not even a lesson. It's office hours. I call it office hours. And we just have open conversations. Sometimes it's directed by a certain lesson or something that I need them to do. But at the same time, my course welcomes people in on an evergreen basis or an ongoing basis. So they may be at any point in the course throughout any given day. You have people in the course who are at the beginning, people who are at the end. And so that's why the office hours, I haven't had to split them up to this. I've seen other people do this, but this office hour is for people who are in phases one through three. Now, this office hour is for phases four through six, whatever. It's actually been a really great opportunity for those who are early on to learn from those who are further ahead and vice versa. So I definitely agree, though, that having that live coaching component is what brings people through the course with the accountability and feeling as though they were cared about and heard and got something of great value out of it. And if somebody is stuck, right, they have one question that unlocks all of their learning if there's no live component, they stay stuck and they get frustrated, yeah. right? Like there's a reason why you can raise your hand in a classroom. You know, it's like while college is really expensive and really overpriced compared to what it used to be. When my grandmother went to college, a semester of the University of Texas cost her $25 oh, for all of goodness. her classes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Even when you adjust for inflation, it is like off the charts cheaper than it is right now, right? But there's a lot of elements of that that are really good and, and need to be preserved. And don't listen to anybody who says, oh, yeah, get into the course business and you'll make millions of dollars and you'll sit on the beach not doing any work. It's a job. Like you're doing the work of a teacher. And the probably the biggest difference between being a course creator and a teacher in an institution is that you spend a lot more time selling the teaching. And I think that that's actually really valuable. I really wish more of my professors and more of my teachers had spent the first day of class selling the class to us, right? <laughs> Telling us you have to take this because there's going to be a test and you will be punished if you don't learn this material was not motivating for me as a student. There was a class that, that I dropped because I, I came into the class knowing it was going to be important because I had already been in business enough. I knew business law was a really important class. This is my chance to listen to an attorney teach me about business law 
for a whole semester. And that was one of the few classes that was totally not overpriced because sitting with an attorney for all of those hours, <laughs> yeah. if I'd have actually paid the attorney would have been a fortune. And the first lawyer, the first class that I took, the professor was not tough enough. And I dropped the class because I wanted a tougher class with the professor who knew more. Oh, that's I, I was sold. I was like, I need to know this. I don't want an easy A. The other students in class wanted an easy A, but I'm like, <laughs> I my family's in business. You're in legal issues all the time. And if you can avoid one court case because you didn't make some stupid mistake, it's yeah. really valuable. But I had other classes, and we all had teachers, right, who were like, okay, this. why do I need to learn this? Because it'll be on the test. Why it is on the test? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, you don't learn there. Right. You might memorize something temporarily for the test, but if the whole point is the test, once the test is done, the class goes away in your memory. Mm-hmm. And so the act of selling it and the act of putting a price on it where you actually have to prepare and pitch the content is really valuable for the student, I feel. It's not just a, oh, I have to get students to make money. It's like, no, you're evangelizing for your ideas. <laughs> and if your course is a Christian course, evangelism really may be the right word. <laughs> it, absolutely. And I tell people that, especially those of us who are in faith-based communication, your what you're doing when you're selling your course, I, I tell them, don't think of marketing as peddling or advertising. Think of it as evangelism. And now somebody jumped on my throat once and said that that sounded like I was trying to get them to profit from the gospel, which is not at all what we're talking about. Not at all. We are not saying that you should love money more than you love Jesus. No, never, never. But again, if this is your vocation, if this is not your hobby, but your vocation, and it is within holy boundaries to charge for what you do, then the beauty of it is, as a faith-based creator, you're doing that with an even deeper purpose than just earning money or just teaching people something. What you're teaching them has eternal value because it's tied to your faith. It's it, Many of the people that I work with are doing online Bible studies. They're doing online business coaching for faith-based creators. They are incorporating biblical principles and faith concepts into their teaching. And that has eternal value beyond whatever you earn from this course. And so if you were going to talk to somebody about Jesus, you'd be pretty enthusiastic about it because you love him and you want people to know him because you know the difference he can make in your life. And I'm not saying your course is equated to Jesus. Of course not. But if your course is related to your faith, then shouldn't you be just as enthusiastic about sharing it because you know it can make a difference in people's lives? So approach marketing with the same enthusiasm that you would approach evangelism because you truly believe in the difference that it can make in somebody's life. And if you don't believe that your course is going to make people's lives better, don't sell that course. (laughs) You should not (laughs) be selling it. (laughs) The number one principle of sales, you have to believe in what you're selling. If your conscience or if the Holy Spirit in you is you have a check, right? It's like you shouldn't be selling this. Don't sell that thing. There are things that perhaps should not be sold, right? I would be a terrible cigarette salesman because I believe (laughs) in my heart. People probably shouldn't smoke cigarettes. I don't believe that we should pass a law, right, making cigarettes illegal, but I wouldn't want to sell it, right? Somebody offered me a lot of money to sell cigarettes Mm -hmm. and somebody's like, hey, we want to sponsor your podcast for our cigarette company. I'd be like, pass. (laughs) I don't believe in that. And obviously that's an easy example, but there's a lot of other things that I think that that applies to. So we've talked about why courses are important. We've talked a little bit about structuring the course and the tech stack, which going back real quick, we need to add Zoom to your tech stack because that's a key piece. 
because um, uh, it costs money, right? You're paying money for ConvertKit. You're paying money for Kajabi. You're paying money for Zoom. I have Zoom, but I don't use it as a part of my courses. I use Crowdcast instead. So do I. I use Crowdcast for my live masterclasses. That is one of the, it's um, an opt-in to get people into the course. But then I do use Zoom for my course meetings because people wanted to see each other's faces. So I actually use Crowdcast and I bring people up when they have a question. And so when they have a question, I bring them up, they can see their face and then they don't have their face up the whole time. In my case, they wanted to be able to have their faces up the whole time to build community. Isn't that funny? Because I was using Crowdcast and I like Crowdcast better than Zoom. So I do the same thing for my, I have some mastermind groups that aren't attached to my courses, but the masterminds really have to have bought a course if they want to get accepted. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want your application to get accepted, if you haven't bought any courses, I'm going to send you to a course first, partly because it's cheaper. And also, I don't want the mastermind calls to feel like commercials for the course. And I'll often give masterminds homeworks, like you need to go back and listen to this module to answer this specific question. But for those mastermind calls, for the same reason, everyone's faces all the time because mm-hmm. they're getting to know each other and it's smaller. I feel like Zoom starts to break down around 15 people, right? If you're yeah. looking at, especially once you go past um, one screen of faces, it totally breaks down because now you're seeing different people all the time and somebody's not muted and they're barking in the background or everyone's muted all the time, which means you say something funny and you can't hear anyone laughing. And this is what we learn. (laughs) We learn as we go, right? I I hold my tech stack besides ConvertKit and Kajabi, but the rest of it, I really hold loosely. I'm not going to go those two. But like I said, I started on Crowdcast and I got feedback from my participants that they really wanted more visual engagement with each other. So I switched to Zoom. If at some point that seems to be a little overwhelming, I'll switch again to something else. Uh, And, I think being all open to the idea of altering your tech stack based on what is working best for you and for your people is important. I would add Loom to that tech stack because I do a lot of going into different platforms and, and showing people or I'll call up in a Loom video there. They sent me something to look at. So I'll just I'll share my screen. I'll record my screen. I'll talk them through it. And I'll send that as a response to something they may have posted a question they posted about in the group. So it's not me constantly typing my answers, but I'll just do a quick video response. If you're not aware, Loom is a tool for recording your screen. So if somebody's like, how do I log into Facebook? You just turn on Loom, you record your screen, you're like, here, I'm typing in www.facebook.com. Here's the login button. Yes. <laughs> so for answering those kinds of like step one, step two tech questions, Loom can be uh, really easy to use. I have it. I don't use it very often, partly because I do a lot of coaching at the beginning of my courses on how to use Google for really basic questions. <laughs> so I really put for because the how to technical details, there's a YouTube already, a video already. Like Yes, but but not necessarily just the technical, but you know, here's my sales page. What are your thoughts on my sales page? Well, I will run through your sales page and record myself looking at your sales page and give you some feedback on what I think of it. And just to make it a little, oh, interesting. Yeah, a little more personalized that so, way. So you do that pre-recorded. You don't do that live. I will do it live when we're in our office hours. But if it's somebody happens to, because I want them to have, have access to ask and answer questions all day long, not waiting for the next live coaching office hour. So if somebody needs to get some feedback today and my coaching hour is not till Thursday, I will gladly respond to them inside the Facebook group. And so for that, I will use Loom if it requires having feedback. If it's for feedback on something and I need to look at it, uh, I often will just record a Loom so that they're seeing what I'm seeing as we're talking through their sales page, for example. 
Yeah, in that way, it's it's saving you time from writing the yeah. three paragraph yeah. comment on Facebook. <laughs> Perhaps I should use Loom a bit more, but I'm so busy creating content yeah. for my podcasts. I, I'm not that accessible. Oh. <laughs> it's like you have me during the office hours, and maybe I'll leave some comments on the community. But the community is as much for connecting students with each other as it is for connecting them with me. But before we go, I want to talk about getting students. Because for a lot of folks, they've had a course on their website for a long time, no one signing up for it. And the idea of getting people to sign up for their course seems like this kind of mysterious thing. And I suspect we acquire students in completely different ways. So I'm curious to compare this. I'll bet we do. I'll bet we do. Yeah, I'm big on sales funnels. I'm big on automated sales funnels because I want to be getting new students into my course while I sleep. And that is another reason that I like to sell that DIY version because it doesn't require more of me in order to get more transformation from students. Okay. And what is an automated sales funnel for somebody who just are like, that's a lot of words and I don't know what they mean altogether. <laughs> that's a lot of big words. Okay. So it means essentially I have a sales page and we'll talk in a minute about how do you get people to look at your sales page? That's really what we're talking about, right? Or how to get people to the checkout to your course to learn about your course. And that we'll talk about that in a sec. But the the sales funnel essentially is a sales page, which tells everyone about the benefits of the course. I It, it doesn't not tell you a whole but a lot about here is exactly what you're going to get inside each module. I mean, I've got that on there. But first, that sales page talks about the benefits of the course you always talk. And I know you know this, Thomas, and then you do this too, right? You talk about the emotions before you talk about the information. So here's what this is going to do for you and how it will transform you. And then once people are interested in the course from the sales page, click to uh, they click a button to buy or perhaps there's a checkout field that's right inside that inside that same sales page, then they enroll with their um, contact information, their credit card information. And then they are automatically redirected to a thank you page that gives them information about how to access the course. And behind the scenes, my email is tagged to automatically go to their inbox saying, welcome to the course. Again, reiterating all those same details in case they didn't catch it on the page. You get them into the course and then I follow up with a nurture sequence in my email. So I'm telling them, here's how to get the most out of the course. Here's where you can go if you need to have any questions answered. And how is it going? Provide feedback and get testimonials and that kind of thing with the, your emails. And these are pre-written emails that don't go out to everyone. They only go out to that person. And it's like after one day, send this email. After another day, send this other email. And you'd be like, that sounds really complicated. It's, it's not. And it is if you're on MailChimp. And that's why no one's on MailChimp. <laughs> it's like I can work it. It is really, really easy. And that way they're getting emails based off of where they're at. Yes. Rather than emails based off of where you're at. So sure, you can send out a newsletter to everybody on ConvertKit. But the real power is that the email feels relevant and personal to that person at that time where it's as an act of service rather than an act of promotion. Exactly. An act of service to nurture those folks, to show that you care for them and to actively provide value to them. But you don't have to be writing a new email for every new participant that enrolls because it's, it is automated. You write that series once, you double check every so often, you go back in there and make sure it's still relevant, it's still timely. But it, it, what happens is Someone enrolls and they are triggered through a tag, which is a technical term in ConvertKit that sends people this series of emails. So that's my automated sales funnel. But how to get people in for my course, I, I how do I say this? I have tried and failed 
to use a webinar or a masterclass to enroll people in my courses until I learned how to do it right. And now it is absolutely the sauce for me to getting people into my course through a free masterclass that gives them value added content. And if they want to take it another step further, they're welcome to enroll in the course. And I have up to a 20% conversion rate on my Evergreen Masterclass. Do you use the perfect webinar formula for your webinars? You tell me what you think the perfect webinar formula is. I forget his name, but there's a guy who's got a formula for webinars and he calls it the perfect. (laughs) No, again, I learned this from Haley Burkhead. So Recurring Profit is the formula that I use. And basically it uses sales psychology in order to true sales psychology, not just what you think is going to work, but is touching on the pain points, explaining what the mistakes are that most people in your space, most people in your target market make, working through how not to make those mistakes, but how to do this instead. And there's a lot of teaching that's involved in all of that. And then you flip over to explain how your system, your method, your course can help, again, bring them from that point A to point B, and then offer them the opportunity to enroll for more information or to engage in this further if you're ready to take the next step. And it's not a bait and switch. I do not like that approach. So I say right up front in my webinar, there's going to be an offer for you at the end of this free masterclass. You're going to get a lot of value added content. And if that's all you're here for, that's great. But some of you are going to want to know more and go a step further. And for that reason, there is an offer at the end. And again, then you get those people who are grateful that you're selling something because they want to know more. Those who don't will just sign off and they've learned something new and that's great. And I'm they're still in my email funnel because they had to get into my subscriber list in order to register for the webinar. So that's key. Then you nurture those people because eventually it's not the right time today, but it might be the right time in six months. And they can always unsubscribe. So you're never bothering people because they always have the authority to unsubscribe. So then I continue to nurture them with more emails. So that's how I get people. But there's a whole process that involved, right? Organic and paid marketing strategies to get people to look at the entry point to your funnel. But for me, the entry point for my funnel right now is that free masterclass. How about you? What do you do? So it's Russell Brunson's perfect webinar for those of you who are curious. I think there's actually a YouTube video of it now. He used to sell it cheap. It used to be his tripwire into his system. And either he or somebody else uploaded the training to YouTube. Yeah, I don't use his system. I've failed at webinars before until I learned the Haley Burkhead way. And now I am a believer. Yeah. So for me, it's it's webinars uh, as well. I've been doing webinars since 2013, back when the technology was just awful. I mean, there's a reason why Becky and I both really like Crowdcast. And it's because (laughs) if you used any of the ones before that go to webinar or what do we use? We used to use Meeting Burner. Oh my gosh, they were awful. They were so (laughs) bad. And they're so buggy and glitchy. So my first course I ever created was in 2013. And there was no Teachable back then. There was no Kajabi. We You had to use WordPress and the plugins for WordPress weren't very good. And it was hard. It was really hard. And learning the technology was the bigger emphasis. Now, Kajabi's good. Teachable's good. There's a few others that are good. And the real emphasis is learning how to teach the material well, where the students get the transformation and learning how to get the students to sign up. So I use a webinar as well, but I don't have not yet for any of my courses bought a single Facebook ad or any other kind of ad. I don't do any advertising. <laughs> tell me, how do you do it? I'll tell you, I, I do use advertising, but my primary is something different. So tell me, what is yours? 
So I'm not saying there's anything wrong about advertising and I reserve the right to do advertising in the future. I just haven't gotten around gotcha. to it. So the uh, primary way is I have a big email list and following with the podcast. Yep. So I'll mention the webinar on the podcast, but mentioning a webinar on a podcast is tricky because some of you listening are listening in the year 2022 yep. and some of you listening are listening in the year 2024. <laughs> and yep. we hope things are going well. I hope the robots haven't risen up and overthrown their human masters by then. Is COVID uh, gone yet? It, yeah. So, <laughs> which is at least with Christian Publishing Show, this podcast, I now have the ability to add pre roll and post roll ads so I can say, hey, there's a podcast in two weeks. And then after that, I can take it off automatically. Uh, but that's the primary way. So I get about half my students just from the organic community of, of folks who already know who I am. And they're often already anticipating because the book launch blueprint, we only do it once a year. And people are anticipating that. Of course, it's in the spring and and you, people really need it, right? If you have a book launch coming up in the year, you, it's, it, of course, people are emailing me and pestering about when is registration right. open? <laughs> like, I don't know. I just had a baby. We're still figuring it out. So the other way, though, is affiliate webinars where I'll go out to somebody else who already has a, a following and they will introduce me to their audience. I'll host it on my Crowdcast and then I'll present it to their audience. So it's a high trust relationship and it's lucrative for them because they get this big affiliate commission for each person who signs up. And it's worth it for me because half the work really of doing a course is getting the student and that needs to be compensated it does cost money to get students and universities spend a fortune your daughter's probably already getting carpet bombed from universities oh, these high glossy for sure you know for sure. brochures that don't say anything right it's like excellence community yeah. in the next university <laughs> excellence community it's a really pretty <laughs> picture of their campus square that doesn't right. even look that pretty when you're on campus in person <laughs> for sure but i i use partner webinars too i call them partner webinars and that has been a tremendous way to not only grow my audience, but to continue to establish uh, some credibility in the community because in, you know, the community of my space, which is primarily women for me is really where I serve well is women authors, women speakers, um, women content creators, women bloggers who are looking to get into this digital product space, whether it's online courses or digital download type products. And so you find a complimentary audience, someone who has your audience, but is not necessarily promoting the exact same thing. And it's beautiful because you've done all the work and they get a high percentage commission for the smaller, relatively smaller task of welcoming you to their audience. And then you're automatically vetted because they are saying, I trust this person enough that I'm going to welcome them into my audience. And then you run your webinar live and have an opportunity then to gain some conversions from it that also blesses the partner, which I love. I like to do partner webinars as a, a partner host, as well as to be the person to ask others to host mine, because it's a way that we can team up to provide a greater depth and breadth of information to our audience, because what your wheelhouse might be, Thomas, is not necessarily going to be my wheelhouse. And so I love to be able to serve my people with what you know, and others are appreciative to serve their people with what I know. And it's just a way to not only generate conversions and grow your audience, but to serve others in this writer coaching community. That's what's so cool about it. Yeah. If you have a blog, if you've been building an email list 
for your book, you may not realize it, but you could be making hundreds or thousands of dollars helping connect your readers with other people who can help them. Yes. And maybe it's even something that you could help them with, but making the course on that's just too much work and you haven't done it yet. Like a common question I get is how do I advertise? Authors are wanting to buy Facebook ads, wanting to do Amazon ads. And while I haven't done that for my courses, I've bought on behalf of political clients and business clients, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Facebook ads and other kinds of ads. And I was like, okay, I'll make this course. And then I saw Chris Fox's ads for authors who hate math course. <laughs> and I'm friends with Chris. I've had him on my other podcast quite a bit. And he's working on the course and he's telling me about it. So he sends me access and I go through this and two things happen. One, I despaired of ever making a course that was better than his. because <laughs> His was really good. And two, I'm like, why should I bother? I'm just going to send people to Chris's course. And it's going to save me from making, I'll still have like a general kind of advertising principles course. But in terms of like the blocking and the tackling, I'm going to send people over to his course and his course is reasonably priced and it's really valuable. And it's specifically for authors, which is exactly what I would have done. And so instead of trying to beat him, I've joined him and he's got yes. a great course. <laughs> right. And you essentially get paid by for referrals, right? Without having to do the work of creating the course. It's a beautiful relationship. That's right. And I and he cut me a deal. So patrons of Novel Marketing and of Christian Publishing Show, they get a special discount on his course. I think it's the only discount that he offers on his nice. course. Because his aren't, they're like 100 bucks and the discount's 10%. It's not a huge discount, but it's the only one out there. So that's, that's <laughs> <Take> nice. <it. laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. So we're almost out of time, but do you have any final tips or encouragement for somebody who's thinking about putting their toe in the water in terms of course creation? You know, my encouragement is you can do this. You can do this. If half of what we just talked about didn't make any sense, if you just dip your toe in the water today and you start swimming, eventually it will all make sense. And what I especially like to encourage people with is they'll say, I'm not, a, I can't make a course. I'm not an expert in anything. Well, you're writing a book, right? Or you have written a book. So you have enough expertise to share knowledge in book form. So you already have the ability to communicate. You already have the content. You already have the passion for the topic. You may already even have the built-in audience. You have what it takes to create a course. It's just a new format. It's a new way of conveying your message to your audience. But it's an exciting one because like we talked about in the very early on in our conversation is you can engage with people to new levels. And that is what's so exciting about online courses. And so if you think that there's no way you could do this, you can do this. It's like anything else, right? You didn't write your book in a day. You will not create a course in a day. But enjoy the journey because it can be very fruitful. All right. And where can people find out more about you? Mm, I'd love to have new visitors at theinspiredbusiness.co. We are not a .com. We are a .co. Theinspiredbusiness.co. And if you're curious about courses, I would encourage you to go to the webinars, right? Yes. Next time Becky does a webinar, next yeah. time I do a webinar, see how we do it. See if, if she's doing something and I'm doing something, that's something you should consider doing if we're both doing yeah. it, right? So as you do more of these, you'll start to see techniques, lessons that were learned the hard way. I've been doing courses for 10 years now, and I've made most of the mistakes. <laughs> I didn't have a guru or somebody mentoring me in course creation because back in 2012, there wasn't really anybody. I mean, if there was somebody teaching it, I hadn't found them yet. And so 
I was the first bumper car crashing into every wall. <laughs> it was, uh, and it was very painful. So watch what I'm doing and copy it. I don't have like a course on making courses that I'm selling, but Becky, you do offer coaching on that. If somebody's wanting help on making a course. Absolutely. In fact, that is the, my primary course right now is profitable digital products method. And it is a course on how to create a digital product, whether that's a download or an online course. And I just, I love to help people enter that territory because it can be really intimidating if you haven't done it before or if you're not quite sure if your skill set applies. And so I just love the opportunity to walk people through it and discover that they really can succeed in this area and better serve their audience in the process. Well said. This episode's very long blog post version is brought to you by the Christian Indie Publishing Association. SIPA helps independently published authors with resources to publish professionally and market efficiently. If you're thinking about independently publishing your book, but you don't know where to go, you can't go wrong by signing up as a member of the Christian Indie Publishers Association. Members get discounts. They get educational materials to learn how to not make the common mistakes. There are thousands have gone before you. Much better to learn the lessons that they have to teach than to learn the lessons the hard way yourself. And you get a bunch of marketing tools to help make your indie publishing experience easier and more profitable. You also get some really cool discounts on over 40 publishing resources, including ISBNs, book printing, audiobook production, book brush, and more. Part of being independent means you get to pick who you hire, but you also have to Pay them. So getting discounts can be well worth the investment. To learn more, go to christianpublishers.net. That's christianpublishers.net. The Christian Publishing Show is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, the guy who went through that uh, podcast editor's course and learned how to edit podcasts. And it was produced by Lori Christine. If you want to find the notes or links to anything we talked about in this episode, visit christianpublishingshow.com. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.